0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. I'd like to extend a warm welcome to all of you, especially to our visitors. We're glad that you could be with us this morning. Uh, And also wanted to welcome um, Brent Bickering and Sarah Coakley, our newest engaged couple. So we wanted to congratulate you guys. They're on the back row. We're very excited for you all. Uh, This morning we're... uh, Two weeks in now, our second week into a series on the book of James. If you'd like to be turning there, it's on page 1011 on the Pew Bible, if you happen to be using that particular Bible. As we said last week, uh, the title of our series as we go through James this spring is Faith Works. Faith goes to work. Faith in Christ leads us to a life of response, of obedience. And James, uh, that's one of his, his primary goals for us as he writes to us to know what, what it means to step out in faith as we follow Jesus in obedience and, and with all of our lives. So we're going to pick up with that this morning. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 and then verse 12. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and it is to your word that we turn. We are a people uh, who struggle with many trials. That is what we'll be talking about today. That's what you open up for us here in James chapter 1. Would you speak to us in our trials even this morning? Would you give us your perspective on it? Would you begin to change us that we might more gratefully look to you, that we might be sustained in our trial, that we might know your power, the power of the resurrection. And it's in the name of Jesus to whom that we look. Amen. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. It's given for our good and for his glory. Okay, let me start with a question. Did you hear that verse? I mean, did you hear it? Okay, a couple thoughts here. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you uh, meet ver- trials of various kinds, you, I mean, now that we're pointing it out, you're paying attention to it, but maybe you read that over the first time and you had one of two reactions. Maybe you just sort of read right by it. You've read it before, you know the Bible, and it just sort of went in and out. Or maybe you read it and you were listening and you thought, right. Yeah, joy in the midst of trials. It sounds like a nice religious platitude, an attitude I'm supposed to embrace, but you don't know my life, right? How can that be? How can we have joy in our trials? How is it even going to be possible for us that our lives would really be marked by a solidity of joy in the midst of all the really uh, all the struggles of our lives, both the mundane ones and the often tragic ones? How is it that even this week in you know, our lives could be marked by joy in our trial in such a way that we could respond to the things that happen with joy rather than apathy or with joy rather than rage? Doesn't that sound good? Maybe even too good to be true. Right, did you notice during the service that it was starting to snow a little bit earlier? Okay, I grew up in the South, and a lot of you didn't. So let me explain. Where I grew up in Tennessee, if at some point during the service we started to see some it's spitting snow like that, as soon as Brian Simpers gets up and starts to pray this pastoral prayer, we would have all hightailed it, and we would have gotten our cars, and we would have done two things: we would have gone straight to the grocery store, and we would have bought bread and milk. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's what we do. And then we would have gotten off the road as soon as possible because we know that as soon as it snows, you're not supposed to drive. In fact, where I grew up, as soon as there was two inches of snow on the ground, it was a major catastrophe and everything shut down because nobody in the South knows how to drive in the snow and ice. It's just true. So you get two inches of snow on the ground and you, would, and, and you, would, you'd, you could walk down a street because all the cars would have like veered off into a ditch and would be stuck there. And here's the point in this. <clears throat> Southerners don't know how to drive in the snow. And some of y'all are not Southerners, and you do know. Because you know that when you're driving in the snow, and especially when you hit a patch of ice, and your car begins to skid, what are you supposed to do? Okay, now your instinct is to turn is to turn yourself out of it, right? But what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to turn into it. Sli- Did I get this right? You're supposed to turn into it. Sli- I mean, I grew up in the South. I'm still trying to get this straight. <laughs> you're supposed to turn into it somehow, and that's supposed to make your car... Balance out because you need a counterintuitive response when you're driving to keep from ending up in the ditch. Everything in you says that you want to sort of turn out of it, but you've got to lean into it somehow. It is totally counterintuitive and you have to learn it. Okay, well, James speaks to us today about a counterintuitive response to our lives. Okay. Because what happens when trials come? We tend to react in many ways, but often not this way of responding in joy. It's counterintuitive for us. And that's what James got, has to teach us about this morning. Because in our trials, we all tend to drive like Southerners. And we all tend to drive right into the ditch. And James wants better things for us. So let's look at, at what he does tell us about our trials. Uh, he, we're going to see just here a, a, a few simple things he points out. He points out the reality of our trials. And he tells us something about the nature of our trials. And he talks to us about how to live in the midst of our trials. Those three things. So first, the reality of our trials. And there are three things about this. Look what he says about the reality of our trials. First, he begins this whole passage, verse 2, with, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is not a translation from the Greek issue. It's not ambiguous. He could have said, if you meet trials could have said if something strange happened in the midst of your Christian life and for some unforeseen reason you actually were to have a trial in your life, then then count it all joy. What does he say? He's speaking to Christians and he says when you encounter trials. He says this is the common lot of mankind in the fallen world. We are going to face trials. Believers and non-believers alike. Everyone. That's a part of life under the sun here in our world. He says when you face trials, they are inevitable. They're inevitable. And one thing just quickly this means is that when trials come up in your life or trials come up in someone else's life you cannot read the tea leaves to figure out why this trial has come what did this poor soul do that this would have happened in their life what, what did I do that this happened in my life you know there are certainly trials and things that we bring into our lives consequences of, of our sin of our poor choices and those are trials but that's just one small subset of them all kinds of things happen to us in our lives it happens to all of us So that's the first thing James says. They're inevitable. Second thing he tells us is that they're unavoidable. Now the way uh, the ESV we're using here in verse 2 translates it. It says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, the Greek word here, I mean, it it means meet. But it also can have this, this connotation of when you fall into. When you stumble into trials. Nobody's really going out of their way looking for them. You know what it's like when you're walking along and you don't see the hole and you trip and you're down. When you fall into trials of various kinds, when you stumble into them, they are often for us unavoidable. Uh, some of you may have read uh, the autobiography of uh, Sheldon Van Auken uh, called A Severe Mercy. Uh, it was written back in the 60s, I think. Uh, and it's about this man, Sheldon Van Auken, and, and his wife, this woman, Jean Davis, that he falls and meets, falls in love With and uh, they're not Christians, though they later become Christians, partly through the influence of their friend C.S. Lewis, whom they meet. But in the story, it happens right around the time of World War II as uh, everything around them in the world is just falling apart. And they find each other. And they find in their love for each other this incredible bond and this incredible joy and this incredible, what they come to feel is this barrier to the struggles of the world around them. Okay, because they're convinced that no matter what happens in the world around them, their love will protect them. They had a, they had a term for it. They, they called it their shining barrier. This powerful love that they felt for each other, and their belief was you know that we we believe in the shining barrier, and it can by the power of our love keep keep harm away or keep us untouched somehow. Well, the shining barrier for them began to crumble when uh, they went through a, a series of real struggles and tragedies, one of which was uh, this this woman, his wife, uh, Jean, she contracted cancer and through this particular struggle, she came to faith, uh, this along with other things in her life, and eventually he came to faith, and it took much longer for him. But, but there was this process as they saw the shining barrier threatened and shattered and life not at all turning out the way they thought it would, that they came to to see that trials are inevitable. We can't hold them at bay. Nothing's going to keep them all out. So when they happen, they do happen, they're inevitable. And also we see here, James tells us, we also feel that they are pervasive. What kind of trials does he speak of? Look what he says. When you meet trials of various kinds, he is purposely casting it open wide. All kinds of trials come into our lives. All sorts of things, both the tragic and the mundane. You know, the sickness, the illness, the loss of job. Um, the struggle this morning over breakfast, getting your kids clothed and decent and ready to be in church, you know, everything, the whole spectrum, various kinds, all kinds of trials come into our lives. And as a a pastor, I I see a lot of trials very up close. I I have my own set, and and I have a front row seat for for many of y'all as well as you struggle through trials of various kinds. Think about your own week, even this week. For some of us, we've had many and some of us few, but I would say most of us have had something this week. And look around and take that number of trials of your life and multiply it by the number of people in this room, and you know that we are people who are beset by trials. Uh, Life is certainly not only trial, but it certainly contains them. And James speaks to that for us this morning. And these trials come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are... uh, Things that are trials in and of themselves, illness, death, losing a job. Some trials, though, if you notice, come into your life actually through good things. They come in in through the good door. For instance, uh, if if you're married, marriage a beautiful thing. Wouldn't you say it's brought some trials into your life at times that you just wouldn't have had otherwise? Or when you have children. You know, there's that day when that beautiful baby is born, uh, and then soon you discover this This is a wonderful gift and a trial at the same time, right? And, you know, I I know some of you that have children much older than I do, and you can tell stories, too, about all all the pain kids can bring into your life, not in spite of your love for them, but because you love them, that it opens you up for trials that you wouldn't have expected in any other way. Your friendships, your work, all of it, avenues for trial for us. So he does tell us about this reality of trials. They're inevitable, they're unavoidable, they're pervasive. But he goes on to tell us uh, something else. He tells us something about the nature of our trials that we go through. Our trials can be for us either, and sometimes at the same time both, uh, a test or a trial and a temptation. Okay, Because if, if you are to look at the, the word that's translated as trial here in verse 2 and uh, verse 3 and then down in verse 12, if you skip down to verse 13 and 14, James begins to speak about temptations that we fall into. And it's the same Greek word. Uh, it's, it's, the Greek word can mean two distinctly different things. It can mean a, a trial, like a test, or a temptation. And in some passages in Scripture, it seems to carry the connotation of both because when things of life come at us, they're certainly going to be a trial on the outside. And for many of us, sometimes, for all of us at times, they become a real temptation too, don't they? Temptation to a variety of things. So he says these trials can be a, a test or a temptation for us. And the word that he talks about here when he talks about trials or a test, um, ESV says trials, a lot of uh, other uh, translations may say tests. And when we think about tests, I mean... you We've been students at some point in our lives. You know what that means. You're going to have a test that's going to evaluate if you've really gotten the information in the class or not. At the end of the day, it's either thumbs up or thumbs down. You either either got it and you passed the test or you failed the test. And it would be easy to read this in this context and think, well, these tests come and the trials come. And they're to tell us whether or not we have actual faith in God. Okay, but that's not the way to read this. James is speaking to a group of Christians, And the kind of tests and trials he's speaking about are the kind that come not to prove whether or not you have faith. He's assuming that we do. He's addressing the church. It comes and he says, these tests and trials come to refine our faith. Okay, This word, when it's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it has to do with these contexts of metal being refined, of impurities being burned away as they go through trial. It is heat that's being brought into life, into our lives, so that the impurities are burned away. Like, for instance, you take gold and it's mixed with stuff. What do you do? You, you submit it to the fire and, and the impurities are burned away that it might be pure and it might be valuable. That's the kind of trial that James is talking about. He says these come into our lives. This refining process comes into our lives. And they these trials, they, they can accomplish something in our lives that nothing else can. Have you ever noticed that? You go through hard times, It's often hard to see it in the middle of it. Sometimes on the tail end we look back and we think, you know, this brought about or something in my life that never would have happened otherwise. Or this brought a strength into my life that I never could have imagined if I had not gone through this. And one particular fruit of trial that he points to, one particular result that's meant for us is in verse 3. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness produces steadfastness. The idea here is of standing firm, of being unmovable. He said the testing of your faith brings this kind of steadfastness into your life. You know what this is like if you've ever exercised in any context. You've been on a sports team, you walk up and down the stairs in your house every day, you know, wherever you are on that spectrum, you know how how does your body, how does your body become stronger? A runner? How does your body become faster? If you're a football player, how, how, how do you become stronger and more able to fulfill your position on the team? What do you do? You have to work your muscles very hard. There's no other way to get strong, and there's no other way to get fast. I can remember in high school track when you're on, you know, four you're running the 400s, and you're on number 15 of those, and you think that your your legs are just going to melt underneath you. You know what that's like. Ironically, or this is just the way it works, it's in that moment of greatest perceived weakness that your body is actually becoming stronger. You're going to end up stronger and faster because you did those laps, because you did that exercise. That's the only way to make your body stronger. We know that when we're trying to be athletes. But you see, James says it is exactly the same way in our lives as well, as far as our own steadfastness of character. He says the only way you become steadfast the only way you have this stick to itness, this solidity in life, is actually by going through trials. That is how God works those things in your character. And they only happen through being exercised like that. And like those, those moments when you think you're going to collapse. God most at work, building steadfastness into us. Now he goes on and says it, it does more than just that. Verse 4, he says, um, "...and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect." And complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Another way to translate that would be mature and sound. That you might be whole. That you might have the whole complement of what you need as we follow Jesus in this world. Uh, one commentator says it this way uh, that uh, James is speaking here uh, of the fact that enduring trials brings spiritual maturity. That's how we gain spir- spiritual maturity through steadfastness that comes only through trials. Uh, Dan Doriani used to be a professor at Covenant Seminary. Now a pastor wrote this in a commentary. He said, trials lead to well-rounded virtue. There's no virtue that trials cannot build. There's no defect that trials cannot remedy. No strength that trials cannot impart. But it begins with steadfastness. Because if you don't start there, then you will never stick around to see what God might work in your trials. It begins with God making us steadfast. Okay, great. Trials are real. Here's the character of our trials. How are we going to live in them? How are we going to bear up under them? How are we going to take what James is telling us and how is that actually going to bring any sort of real transformation to the way we experience these in our lives? Well, James goes on to talk to us about this. And he tells us a couple things. Um... One is he exhorts us to take God's perspective of our trials. To take on God's perspective of our trials. That we might see things through his eyes. That we might see things through the lens of what he is doing in our lives. And here's the way we see that in our verse. Look back to what God us all started on this a little while ago. Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy. Consider it to be joy. By faith, look at the trials of your life and em- embrace the fact that God can work real joy here. Now, he goes on and says, count it all joy. And it would be very easy and very dangerous to misread this because it would be easy to look at this and think that what he's saying is, you know, consider it, consider it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers. In other words, uh, smile, right? It's a trial, but it's all joy. As if there is only room for joy, as if there was no other response of the human heart. And what he what he is saying is not that. What he what he's saying is that there is an unalloyed joy, an intensity of joy, a solidity of joy. He is not saying that in the middle of the trials of your life that there is no place for mourning. There's no place for crying out. Go to the Psalms. People crying out of the midst of their struggles. Everywhere you look, God welcomes us. To cry out in the midst of our pain. He's not saying that that is not a reality because it is for believers. But he says that is not the only reality for us. That crying out and that pain is not the only thing going on here. That we can find real, real joy in the midst of it as well. And that comes only from banking on God's perspective and knowing how he works in our lives. Okay, okay. Here's two things Scripture tells us about God's sovereign work in our lives. That God loves His people. That He is utterly committed to our good. That in fact, He doesn't allow anything in our life that He is not going to use for our good. And most of the time, we have no idea how that's going to work out. But He says, that is what is true. I love you, my people. Nothing can shake that. But that's coupled in Scripture with another equally important truth. That God is powerful enough to bring about His will. In other words, he doesn't just have good feelings for us, that he has the power to actually take our hardships and do what He wants to with them, which is to use them for our good. He is good, He loves us, and he is powerful. All things are in his hands. God is our sovereign God. Now, Reformed theologians have a way of speaking about God's work in our lives over the long haul, and you've maybe heard this phrase before, uh, the, the uh, perseverance of the saints. Okay? And that phrase means that Scripture teaches us that ultimately God is going to bring His people home. We're going to go through hard things. We may struggle deeply. We may wander. But God will bring His people to Himself infallibly. Okay? But as some have rightly tweaked that, there's another reality that underlies that, that underlies our, the perseverance of the saints. And that is God's preservation of the saints. All those whom God preserves, perseveres. In other words, yes, we persevere in trial, but it is always standing on the finished work of Christ for us. That we have a guaranteed home that we have a God who holds us solidly in our hands. And as we are in the midst of the very hard work, as we experience it, of persevering, we have a God who preserves us. So we can find and know real joy because we are not alone in our struggle and in our trial. He says, count it, consider it, step into this way of seeing your life. Now, there are a couple of ways, many ways we can avoid this. And here's one way Christians tend to avoid it we read it this way consider it nothing when you meet trials of various kinds right everything's fine yeah you know that permagreen that we wear when we come to church and other places every of course I'm, everything's fine god is so god is so good right good words but often religious platitudes that we slap on when we don't want to face the hardness of life and we rob ourselves of knowing real joy because we won't really face up to what's actually happening in life So count it nothing when you meet trials of various kinds. Others of us lean in the other direction. Consider it pure hell, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, right? When all we see in the trial is the hardness, and we feel the abandonment and the struggle, and we make a choice to latch on to that. Rather than, these are hard, and our God is present and he loves me and he has power and he calls me to joy and not despair uh, you may be familiar with an article I read again, came across this week uh, by John Piper and David Powlinson and it's called Don't Waste Your Cancer as I understand the story John Piper a number of years ago uh, developed I think it was prostate cancer and he wrote this letter as a series of reflections and ten points about not wasting his cancer and his friend David Powlinson who's a Counselor and professor uh, where I went to seminary uh, also later contracted cancer and and added to it. And the the letter kind of circulates from both of them. And I want to read you just the the taglines for a couple of the points. Number one, you will waste your cancer if you do not believe it is designed for you by God. Number two, you will waste your cancer if you believe that it is a curse and not a gift count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. In other words, participate in what God is doing in the trials of your life. And James exhorts us to action here too. Look in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it have its full effect. Give yourself to the work of God in your life. Let it have its effect. Because we all know That actually some trials, in the end, our experience has been, it crushed us. What does James say? That can happen. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Look to Jesus in the middle of this. Turn to him rather than your despair. There's an active role for us. This is training for us, not bare survival. God is up to something. Let yourself, let steadfastness have its full effect. And then he goes on. Looking, looks to steadfastness. He looks beyond it to what, what the character that can bring into our lives. But then look at verse 12 where he ultimately looks. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now for James, that was not simply pie in the sky by and by. What's he saying? There is a day that is coming when steadfastness will no longer be required. This word steadfastness, it also carries the connotation of of someone when you are carrying a very heavy load and you keep carrying it. Steadfastness. And James says one day that steadfastness leads right down to the road to the day when we are going to take that burden off our back. In fact, Jesus is going to lift it from our back and say, you are home. And the hike is over. And you know what that's like if you've carried things on your back, backpacks, children, for too long, and you take them off, and you feel like you're 50 pounds lighter because the, the trial is over and the burden is laid down. And James wants us to know that that day is coming. We are not there yet. That's why your trials still feel heavy. Because they are. Because they're still on our back. But he says, one day we are going to put those down. He says, have hope. He uses the image here of a crown. Now, we we read crown and we think, um, likely, you know, gold crowns, kings... Uh, likely what they would have heard in their first century Greco-Roman world uh, is they would have thought not of the gold crown of a king, but the wreath of laurel leaves that an athlete receives when he is the victor at the end of a race. Uh, It's the same idea that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, same word here, crown, but we an imperishable wreath. Compares it again to this athletic contest. And that's what he has in mind. He says, one day we receive this crown of life. The race is over. And in Jesus, we find real victory. We cross the finish line and we are home. So he talks about what this steadfastness does. These are hard words to hear maybe for some of us. Because it's easy to think, you don't know what I'm going through. Well, you've got to consider where they come from, these words. First, We need to consider James, the one who writes these words to us. Uh, It's reported in um, Josephus and and, and other ancient sources that James was martyred in A.D. 62. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And the rulers of uh, the religious leaders of the day in Jerusalem wanted him to uh, dissuade the followers of Jesus. They wanted them to recant their faith. And so what they did is they took him up Uh, on the summit of the temple so that he could be seen by the crowds at the temple and he could speak to them. And they wanted him to tell everybody to abandon Jesus. Instead, he begins to testify to the goodness of Jesus in his life. And so they threw him off. Uh, And he fell, uh, crushed, but not dead. So they came down, and they picked up rocks, and they stoned him. count it all joy, my brothers. You meet trials of various kinds. James knew of what he spoke. But you know, James points us beyond even himself. He points us to Jesus, the one who held James in his hands, and the one who holds us in his hands as well. Think about Jesus, the only one who really successfully navigated the tests of life, passed them without fail, Un unneeding refinement the only one for whom trials were not inevitable and pervasive because what happened second person the trinity in the presence as god untouched by human trial what does he do he takes on flesh he steps into our world he submits Himself to all the brokenness of this world. He takes on pain and death for us when He did not have to. Can it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter, fall, stumble into trials of all kinds? Jesus never stumbled into a trial. He jumped into them with both feet for us. What does He do? He stands in the trial. He took it. Hebrews twelve two puts it this way. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured. Same word, being steadfast. For the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't you see that Jesus stood His ground for us? He stood His ground on a hill and on a cross. When he let himself be killed. You know, as he had said to his disciples, he said, Don't you understand that in in a moment's notice I could speak a word and legions of angels would come to my rescue. But I will not do that. That is not the way this is going to go. I'm going to stand my ground. And he stayed on the cross, even as he was mocked. And the crowd yelled up at him, You know, you say you can save others. You can't even save yourself. You can't even come down off that cross. Not even imagining what they were saying. Jesus standing his ground. Now listen. As you are able, and as I am able, to see Jesus standing his ground for you, for me. As we look to him and see that we find all we need in him a savior in the midst of sin. A brother in the midst of struggle. A Lord and King who will raise us up one day. Our God himself who brings joy and steadfastness. Who is at work in your trials and my trials today. Unless we see Jesus doing this for us, we're never going to be able to have joy. Because we aren't going to know the power of the one who took the hit for us. And who stands with us, even as he exhorts us to stand, speaking to us, persevere, saints, but you are preserved, saints. Let me just finish with another quote from John Piper. And for us, when he speaks of cancer, you know, insert trials, or maybe better, insert my trials. The aim of God in your cancer, among a thousand other good things, is to knock the props out from under our hearts so that we rely utterly on Him. And that is what we find in Jesus. Him, steadfast, holding us, brothers and sisters. That is where our joy is to be found. Count it pure joy. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we, your sons and daughters, experience the very real trials of this broken world, that you would uphold us, that you would give us a taste of joy, that you would give us great confidence that though we cannot see what you are doing, we know that you are doing at least this. You are making us steadfast. You are drawing our hearts to you. You are making us strong in ways we cannot imagine and could not be accomplished any other way. We have to trust you in this, but you Or the God who did not stumble into trial, but stepped into it for us. And you stood. Help us to stand even as we rest in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.